Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program is devoted to some of the reasons why police in the United States kill citizens and who those citizens are. Of the 1,100 killings by police in the United States in the year 2015, 85% of those killings were a result of a fatal shooting. 95% of those victims were male. The death rates for African Americans and Native Americans are twice their share of the population. Our guest in this first of a two-part series on why police kill is Franklin E. Zimring, a law professor at the Bolt Hall School of Law at the University of California in Berkeley. He is the author of When Police Kill. Zimring's conclusions, based on the evidence garnered from his empirical research revealed in his book, show, one, police use of legal force is a very serious national problem in the United States. Two, Killings by police are a much larger problem in the United States than in any other developed nation, in large part because of widespread ownership and use of handguns, which increase the vulnerability of police to life-threatening assault. And three, police killings are a very specific problem that can be effectively controlled without major changes in the performance or the effectiveness of the police. This third point is the topic of part two in this series. And for sake of full disclosure, Frank Zimring and I have been friends since our early years in elementary school. Zimring and I visited by phone from his office at the Bolt Hall School of Law in Berkeley, California, on November 17, 2017. We began our conversation when I asked him to discuss policing as a governmental function. What makes policing, and not policing in the United States, but policing all over the world uh, into a unique governmental function, is that police are out there as a first line of response to all sorts of community demands. That includes enforcing the criminal law, that includes responding to emergencies, uh, that includes, until you get the fire department there, your cat going up the tree. And a lot of the problems that they have in not only investigating crime, but responding to emergencies, require that they become the state representative uh, and they can use force, if legally authorized, uh, to solve some of those problems. All of that said, so that that means that every police officer in every interaction with a citizen uh, has the potential of using force to solve problems. But the book that we're talking about today is not about police using force. It's, uh, it, it, it's not about batons or physical force or calling another officer. Uh, it's about lethal force. It's about the use of 
essentially guns for 86% of the killings that we're going to be talking about uh, uh, to uh, respond to a, uh, a problem that police encounter uh, that ends up uh, producing a high likelihood that a citizen's going to get killed. And what sets the United States apart from every other developed country is that our police uh, kill, we now know from the book's study and assessment, um, more than a thousand people a year, uh, and that that rate is between 25 and 35 times the risk per 100,000 citizens uh, that exists in the other developed countries where we've studied the same phenomenon. There are some uh, exercised use of lethal force in, in German cities, in French cities, in English cities, in Australian cities, in Canadian cities. But police in the United States uh, kill much more often uh, and are also killed much more often by citizen assaults uh, than police anywhere else in the developed world. Well, Frank uh, Zimmering, why in the United States is it so different? Well, there are a mix of three different reasons why American rates of police use of lethal force are much higher than in any other developed country. The big reason why police uh, really have to use deadly force to respond to some attacks far more often than police in other countries uh, is because of the existence of 60 million handguns, which are concealable weapons, uh, which are possessed by citizens in the United States and which are the overwhelming threat to the safety of a police officer. Uh, we, we started, uh, Barry, with the notion that uh, American police kill 30 and 40 and 100 times as often as police in other uh, 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 developed countries, but American police are also killed in citizen assaults 30 times as often as police in Germany and in the United Kingdom. Uh, there are, I mean, the numbers there are phenomenally different. Uh, in England, in an average year, the number of police officers that die is none. In five years, in England and Wales, there were two deaths of police officers total. In Germany, 
population 82 million in five years that we studied. Again, three of the five years, no police officers were killed. In two of the five years, one police officer was killed. So that's in five years, two German police officers. In the United States, the round number is that 50 police officers a year die from citizen assaults. Now, there are 50,000 reported assaults of police officers every year in the United States. That's a lot. But it turns out that about 48,000 of those 50,000 don't threaten the lives of the police officer. 40,000 of them are citizens with personal force. That rarely, if ever, kills a police officer. About 900 each year are knife assaults. But that, even though it would be a real risk for a civilian, uh, uh, it turns out not to be life-threatening for police officers uh, who are pretty hard targets. Can you explain more about the police officers being hard targets, training, uh, vests, etc.? Well, there are several things that make police hard to kill in assaults. One of them is that police are generally not alone. Uh, If Barry Vogel is attacked, he's probably going to be alone. If Frank Zimmering is attacked, he's probably going to be alone. Uh, But if Officer Friendly is going to be attacked, he's going to have another well-trained officer very frequently, and sometimes more than one, to help him. He's also going to be wearing, since the 1970s, a Kevlar vest, which makes uh, him much more resistant both to gunshot wounds and to knives and piercing instruments and baseball bats and blood instruments. So the, the cold fact of what threatens police officers' lives is this. Of those 50 officers every year who die in the United States, 97.5% of them in the six years we studied were killed by firearms. Now, that's going to be a very important explanation of why officers are greatly at risk in the United States. That's going to be an important reason why officers kill citizens so often. But it's also going to be a very incomplete explanation of the killings by officers because almost half of those killings by police officers are in situations where there is no gun and where the officer's life is not at risk. So let's focus on 
why is there a lethal response on those occasions by the police? Okay, well, there are all sorts of reasons why police can use force. But the only good reason to use deadly force is that you need it to respond to a life-threatening attack against either an officer or another human being. You don't find yourself justified to kill people if they're running away from police and they violated the law. You can use force in making an arrest. You can't use deadly force. So the 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 principles that are justifying police use of deadly force is to protect lives. And we know from the study that we did of uh, 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 killings by police in 2015 that in over 95% of the killings by police, the police explain that the threat they were responding to was a threat to a police officer, not to an ordinary citizen. And that's going to be very important when we look at what justifies. So what you have is a thousand killings a year by police officers The vast majority of them involve attacks or assaults or potential assaults of police officers. Slightly more than half of those assaults, 56%, the officer was threatened with a gun or, in an additional 3% of cases, thought incorrectly he was threatened with a gun. And in those situations, we don't don't know how uh, uh, imminent the threat was, uh, and often the gun is simply present, but the officer has good reason to fear for his life. Staying with the perceived threat of a gun, can you address the fake gun, the toy gun, uh, the cell phone in a pocket uh, that may be thought to be a gun? Well, obviously, when we find out they're not guns, uh, that they don't threaten the officer's life. But until the officer knows that, They are a potential life-threatening circumstance. And then there are all sorts of questions. One question is, even if there is a potential deadly threat, are there non-lethal ways to respond to it? Often, what you can do is withdraw and call for help. 
And here what's very important is that usually it is the police officer uh, who feels at risk. So if he can withdraw, he's safe, and the circumstance doesn't have to produce the use of deadly force. The second thing that's very important about I thought he had a gun, or even he did have a gun, uh, but he hasn't shot it, is that if deadly force is used, if there is a, a, a gunfire from the police officer, when can it stop? Because one of the things that the study finds is that not only do police shoot, but they keep shooting. And that one of the reasons why we have so many killings of civilians is that police inflict multiple wounds. Uh, The data that we had from seven years of police shootings in Chicago tell us that if the officers inflict one wound, the citizen will die 21% of the time. Two or three wounds, 40% of the time. More wounds, a majority of the shootings will become killings. So that that means that more than half the deaths occur not because police shot, but because they kept shooting. That's also a very important variable if you want to reduce the deadliness of police use of lethal force. Well, Frank Zimmering, I'd like to ask you why the police shoot multiple times. But before I do that, I want to say that our guest is Professor Frank Zimmering from the University of California at Berkeley, Bolt Hall School of Law, and the author of When Police Kill. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Frank, why multiple shootings? Well, part of that is the training that police go through. And the question is, is it necessary? But that isn't the kind of training that police get now. Why? Now, well, Can we stay with uh, the training for a little bit? Well, I think that there are two things that are involved there. One of them is that when police shooting instructors are teaching police shooting policy, they are concerned about the officer's uh, risks, but they're not concerned about the citizen's risk. And when police chiefs make policy about when shooting can happen and when shootings should be restricted, they are not deeply concerned with citizen risks. Now, that's a terrible mistake. 
but it is also an understandable mistake. There is only the police interest that is at the surface of the problem that leads to police shooting training. And there are also all kinds of administrative difficulties associated with policing in the United States. Um, we have 18,000 different police forces. Now, that means none of them are big enough or sophisticated enough to do good research on police use of lethal force and good research on when gunshots are necessary and when they can stop. So what level of government should do those kinds of research? Well, let's talk about state government for a moment. Uh, there are only 50 states in the United States, so states are bigger and uh, uh, somewhat more uh, expert-laden, and they also have more resources. Uh, should state governments uh, investigate uh, police use of deadly force uh, and make rules? The problem with that is that state government knows nothing about urban policing. Uh, you and I live in California, Barry. Uh, California is the biggest state in the Union. 39 million people. Uh, Sacramento is a huge governmental apparatus. But California state government their only big police force is the highway patrol. That's going to help for traffic tickets. But police use of deadly force in California and all of the other administrative uh, complexities of police rulemaking and police administration, state government is an awful uh, level of government for finding any kind of experience or expertise. And local governments would uh, have far fewer resources to do that. Oh, yeah, no, that, and expertise is non-existent there outside the police department, and the police department is too small and doesn't have very many behavioral scientists. So that leads or led to the federal government, the national government, uh, as, uh, as the only level of government in American life that has the resources and the expertise uh, to do research, to promote policies, and to inform local administration of police departments. Now, there has been, over the last 40 years, one great success story of federal involvement in police safety. I told you at the beginning of our conversation that 
50 people a year, uh, police officers, die from assault in the United States. That's a rate per 100,000 police in uniform of 7 per 100,000. And that's much higher than in other countries, but it is a fabulous, fabulous success story because 40 years ago, the death rate every year for police in uniform was 28 per 100,000. The death rate for police officers from citizen assault came down more than 70% since 1976. One of the reasons was police got better at rules of engagement, but by far the largest explanation was the creation and dissemination of Kevlar, so-called bulletproof vests. Most police in the United States now wear Kevlar vests. The Federal National Institute of Justice funded, did the research, and then produced the money to subsidize the adoption of Kevlar by local police departments. And the consequence is that not hundreds of police lives were saved, but they estimate 9,000 police lives were saved. The problem in the United States is this. Uh, We kill, we being American police, more than a thousand civilians a year. That's three civilians every day that die in police gunfire. Slightly more than half of those are in situations where the police have their own lives at risk or think they do. But almost half of them are situations where police lives are not at risk. But we have 18,000 police departments, and we have a history of not paying close attention to civilian lives as an important dimension of what should regulate police policy. This has been the first of a two-part series on the book, When Police Kill. Our guest is Franklin E. Zimring, a law professor at the University of California in Berkeley and the author of the book, When Police Kill. In part two, we discuss how to address this serious problem that resulted in 1,100 police killings in the United States in 2015. This program was recorded on November 17, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. 
They're all free to listen and download and share anytime, anywhere as my gift to you. Our programs are published weekly, normally on Tuesday evening. Your comments, ideas, and suggestions are always appreciated, and we do enjoy hearing from you. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. Postal mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.